Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Thursday morning, SEC schedules announced. How about it? We know the opponents. Now, we'll see the order later on, but that's for the 2024 schedule. We'll discuss that. That's going to be coming up first. College World Series getting closer and closer. First games will actually be played tomorrow. Of course, LSU's in action on Saturday, and you can hear them at 6 o'clock on the game, but we will get into a couple of those previews, and we'll actually do all four of them today. Um, we're also going to talk, guest-wise, we've got Les East from Crescent City Sports and Bob Nightingale from the USA Today to talk Major League Baseball. Good morning, RP3. How are you doing today? I'm not even needed, bud. You got this. I'm not even needed. This man has only been here, how many months has it now been? Six. Has it already been six months, really? Roughly, yes. Whew. Man's already running, thanks. Man can already run things. I'm not even needed. The RP3 and RP3 and company no longer need it. I don't know. I, I, I might have missed something, too, though. We, let's see. What else do we have in the rundown? <laughs> no, oh, yes. Lance McCullers is not pitching again. That's, we oh. that. we'll, talk, we'll talk about that. We're going to dive into that McCullers thing because I just don't understand why from the time that someone gets injured that it's uh, 600 and some odd days before he has surgery for said injury. Not really understanding that that's some Michael Thomas Saints delaying having surgery type of stuff. Don't really know what's going on there. Don't really know what's going on. But as the man D'Lo said, we got a great show lined up for you today. Les East will join us to talk Saints, minicamp, as well as the latest rumors involving the Pelicans offseason. Bob Nightingale from USA Today will talk all things Major League Baseball. We'll talk Astros this morning. We'll talk the McCullers injury. We'll talk College World Series. But we're going to lead off with the SEC schedules. So, getting over the fact that they decided not to do nine games, which we already knew was going to happen, we finally know the opponents for each SEC team. And we knew going in that each SEC team would play at least Oklahoma or Texas once. We already knew that. That got leaked earlier in the week. Go ahead. No, yeah, just because it was a little confusing, I know, when it got released yesterday. This is nothing to do with the schedule of this fall. This is all 2024. Correct, correct. People are like, hey, hey. I was like, no, calm down. This is 2024. This is 2024. And you'll look at it, and it's some interesting matchups. I thought... Across the board, it seems to be pretty fair, and we get some intriguing matchups, and we'll dive into that across the conference for 2024. But 
I want to start off with LSU because huh, you look at their scheduling in this format. Now, they don't have to play Texas. They're going to play Oklahoma in 2024. The complete 2024 schedule includes games against Alabama, Oklahoma, USC, UCLA, Texas A&M, Florida, Arkansas, Ole Miss, and South Carolina. That is blockbuster game after blockbuster game. I don't know if there's a team besides maybe Alabama that has a lot of big marquee games. If there's another team in the SEC that has that many. Now, of course, the UCLA game is a rescheduled game that they pushed to 2024. USC, UCLA is on there. South Alabama, Nichols is a couple of their other non-conference games. But you'll notice the big omission is Auburn. That's become quite the rivalry game, but in the rescheduling, reshuffling of the conference schedule, in the first rotation, Auburn is nowhere to be found. And neither is Mississippi State. Correct. Who they have? I, I saw a stat yesterday about Essentially, they've only not played Mississippi State like one time, and I mean, you're talking like 60-something years, I mm-hmm. think it is. I mean, it's it's been a while. And Auburn has become really something kind of interesting. It's become a weird rivalry where kooky things happen for both teams, and that's how it's been for the better part of 20 years. So you're not going to have Auburn on the slate for 2024, but the schedule is, man, it's it's a game changer. And you look at it and you go, okay, because LSU kept their SEC West teams, Alabama, Arkansas, Ole Miss, and Texas A&M. It also retained, which is going to probably anger a few LSU fans who are tired of seeing Florida on the schedule, but they retained their annual SEC East crossover opponent, Florida. But as you mentioned, as we mentioned, no Auburn or Mississippi State. The absence of those two teams from the 2024 schedule breaks two of LSU's longstanding, most deep-seated annual rivalry rivalries. LSU's played State 116 times in football, more than any other opponent. You know what's interesting about that? The team that Alabama's played more than any other is Mississippi State as well. Because Alabama and Auburn didn't play for years because of beef between the two universities. So, <laughs> who would have... They've been playing football for a while in Starkville. Yes. A very long time there. The 2024 season will mark the first time since 1943. It's more than 60. That the Tigers and Bulldogs have not played in football. State canceled its season that year because of World War II. (laughs) So, now the teams will play this season in Starkville on September 16th. 
LSU and Auburn, which meet October 14th in Tiger Stadium this year, but not in 2024, have played every year since 1992. So some interesting quirks to the schedule. You knew this was going to happen when you add two teams into the mix. And because you decided not to go nine games. If you would have went nine games, one of those teams takes care of itself. But you don't go nine games because you wanted to go with the eight-game format. And you look at this schedule now for the 2024 season. I just... We don't know the dates, right, for the conference slate. So the four home games for LSU, Alabama, Oklahoma, that is going to be absolutely bonkers. Ole Miss is always a great game, and then, well, there's Vanderbilt. Sorry, Vandy. Sorry, any Commodore fans. Away SEC schedule includes a trip to the Swamp, Florida, going to Fayetteville, which is always interesting for Arkansas, going to South Carolina, and then going to College Station. And there are four non-conference games for 2024. USC and Vegas, Labor Day weekend. Home opener against the Nichols Colonels. Then, two weeks later, against UCLA in that rescheduled game. Shout out to UCLA for 2024. Man, LSU sounds like a Big Ten team. And then South Alabama for September 28th. So, take away Nichols and South Alabama as the not... They're playing USC and UCLA in non-conference. And for conference in 2024, they're playing Bama, Oklahoma, Ole Miss, Florida, Arkansas, Texas A&M. You didn't like my California Big Ten joke? I, I did. I did. So, that is, when I saw that, when I saw it get unveiled last night, you look at that and you go, there's a lot of big time big time games that are going to be broadcast involving LSU in 2024. Obviously the opener, you know, it's going to be one of those special kickoff games that's going to get prime time, Bama, Oklahoma, Florida, A&M. It's kind of a brutal schedule, but a good one, a ton of exciting matchups for the 2024 season. And this is what you're going to get now. This is what you're going to get. You're going to get these types of matchups. So for the Tigers, don't know how the schedule is going to line out. You know the four dates for the non-conference games. You just don't know when the eight conference games, how they're going to be lined out. That'll still be determined at a later date. But the opponents, and if they're home and they're away, are now in the books for the 2024 season. Once again, if you're just tuning in, LSU, it's four home opponents for conference play in 2024. Bama, Oklahoma, Ole Miss, and Vanderbilt. It's four away opponents for the 2024 season. Florida, Arkansas, South Carolina, and Texas A&M. And to make all that happen, obviously, they moved a game with Rice to 2029 to be able to accommodate to clear space. We got to take a timeout. What about the rest of the SEC? How did they fare with the opponents being released for the 2024 schedule? Ooh. 
Georgia and Alabama, they got stacked up a little bit too. We'll talk about that next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Go subscribe to The Game's YouTube channel at The Game Louisiana. That way you can check out the latest original videos and more shenanigans from The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Twenty twenty four opponents for conference play for the SEC was released last night. We already talked about LSU and they have a bit of a gauntlet. Let's talk about UGA because we get some we get some good marquee games there as well. Georgia's home slate of conference games will include Auburn. That's the Deep South's oldest rivalry, dates back to eighteen ninety two. They'll also take on Tennessee and Mississippi State at home. Florida, the world's largest outdoor cocktail party, which they don't call that anymore, but I still do because, well, that's what I do. That's going to play, be played in Jacksonville as normal. There are away games for Georgia at Texas, at Alabama, at Ole Miss, and at Kentucky. And they also open up the season in Atlanta, for a neutral site game there for the Chick-fil-A kickoff against Clemson. So Georgia will be playing the likes of Clemson in non-conference play. They'll play Florida, Auburn, to their traditional rivals. They'll also play Tennessee, but then they're going to play at Texas and at Alabama. So once again, some marquee games with the adding the two new teams. That's Yeah, and, and another thing to think about here is this is going to be the first year. This schedule is going to coincide with the first year of the expanded playoff. So Correct. That's really interesting now when you sit there and look at Georgia. like That's a lot more difficult of a schedule than Georgia's had probably in the last couple of years, right, in the regular season. But, and same with LSU perhaps, right, with those two Power 5 opponents. Now, South Alabama last year won 10 games, so that's even a really good group of five opponent. The only game on there that's, you know, quote-unquote easy game is Nichols, but, and Vandy, I guess. But all that being said, it's interesting that that's the year it happened, right? And I wonder how much kind of thinking was done on the idea that in that year when there's, you know, the playoff expands to 12 teams, you don't, you're not going to need to go 11-1 or 12-0 anymore if you're in the SEC. A 10 wins pretty much definitely get you in and and there's a chance a nine and three SEC team's going to be one of those mm-hmm. last few spots so yeah while you sit there and go wow LSU's got UCLA and USC and, and then all those SEC games and Georgia's got Clemson and all those SEC well yeah but nine and three might be good enough like you could finish fourth or fifth place in the SEC and might and make the playoff still get into the and playoffs. I wonder if how much and I you know I'm sure that was thought about like that's oh, yes like LSU might have tried to maybe okay let's let's try and not get UCLA and USC in the same year or something like that but now it's like well you know what again we can lose a game or two and, and we're still going to have a chance it's, in this new format and now let's it'll also be interesting to see when the format of course happens and our wonderful committee decides on who gets in <laughs> what type of emphasis are they going to put right or if, if you've got a now I don't know how many. I'd assume you're all going to be nine and three. Maybe an eight and four team is in the conversation. But like, how much does that strength of schedule get played? You know, get get factored in because we're going to have a new situation where we're going to have more teams, and we know we're going to have 
five conference champions, but then we're going to have seven at-large spots and, well, no, six conference champions and six at-large spots. So who's going to take, you know, some of those spots? That, that's something to also keep in mind despite the schedules being more difficult. In the SEC especially, you're not going to have to win as many games as you used to. to make you're not going to have to, but you still, because of refusing to go to the nine-game conference format, that allows you to still schedule some non-conference games. Now, I believe LSU probably has the biggest gauntlet because they're playing two of the teams from the Big Ten, which will be the Big Ten by that point, USC and UCLA, Okay, in, in non-conference. I don't think anybody has uh, as difficult non-conference schedule as that. It's surely not Alabama. No, Once again, you pull up the 2024 schedule, Bama has made sure they got a little a bit of uh, Western Kentucky, South Florida, and the Mercer Bears have popped up on the schedule uh, in non-conference play. But Bama does have to make a trip to Camp Randall. They're going to go play at Wisconsin early in the season that year. They still play Auburn, but look at Bama. They have to play Auburn and Georgia, but they have to go at LSU, at Oklahoma, at Tennessee. So, once again, adding in Oklahoma and Texas gives us some kind of marquee matchups there. So, moving to another team that I think might have maybe one of the toughest draws, about Tennessee. Because Tennessee gets Bama and Florida at home. Their other two home games are Kentucky and Mississippi State. And then on the road, they have to go to Oklahoma and to Georgia, also to Arkansas, yeah. and then they get to go to Vanderbilt. Which, you know what, the Vanderbilt team, who knows, maybe they'll put things together by 24. Sure, but, absolutely. Um, and then in non-conference, <laughs> now they don't have a gauntlet per se, but they do have a home game against NC State that's actually going to be played in Charlotte in the Panthers Stadium. So they're going to be playing NC State over there. It's listed as a home game, but that's obviously more neutral site, if anything, probably closer to NC State. But uh, they'll play NC State Chattanooga to open the season, Kent State, and UTEP uh, round out their non-conference schedule. So not quite a gauntlet there, but... I mean, look, and, and we'll see what these teams look like moving forward, but Bama and Florida at home, but then the road games, Arkansas, Georgia, and Oklahoma, all in the same year for Tennessee. And I'm going to raise you. <laughs> I'm going to see your Tennessee, and I'm going to raise you Texas. Here's your Texas 2024 schedule. Welcome to the SEC. They're playing Oklahoma, of course, their traditional rival, as they should, in the Cotton Bowl. The old Big 8, Arkansas Razorbacks at Arkansas. They play Florida at home, Georgia at home, Kentucky at home, and Mississippi State at home, but they still have to play at Texas A&M. So overall, Texas has to play Oklahoma, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Kentucky, Mississippi State, Texas A&M. They get Vandy as well. And then sandwiched in between some non-conference games against Colorado State, UTSA, and ULM, they get to make a trip to Ann Arbor, Michigan to take on the Michigan Wolverines. And UTSA, as of now, still very good. We'll see if that's you know the case by then as well, but that's interesting. I think UTSA's in the preseason rankings, or at least finished last year in the rankings, depending on kind of how you go about that. So yeah, no, interesting for them too. The funny thing, and... Like, when you start to look at who has more difficult or less difficult, like, it's always going to look like Vandy's got a little bit more tough schedule, but that's because they don't play themselves, right? And that's the same thing with Missouri. And, I mean, you know, not to sound like a slight to them, but, like, 
you know, when... Well, Drinkowitz is on the hot seat. Right, and those other teams have an opportunity. Like, they don't play themselves. Like, when I say that, that means there's more of an opportunity for them to have to play Bama or play Georgia or play the the, the, the have-haves of the SEC. And so I think that's something that's interesting. Now, Vandy, this, this first year around, they caught a little bit of a break because they don't have to play Georgia, but they do have to play Bama, Texas, Tennessee, and South Carolina at home. Auburn, Kentucky, LSU, and Missouri on the road. So, well, you know, it's not going to be great for the Commodores. No, unless, it, it never is. things turn. Now, Oklahoma is your other new team starting in 2024 as well, right? So, they're going to play their traditional game against Texas in the Cotton Bowl Stadium. But they have to travel to from Norman at Auburn, at LSU, at Missouri. They host Alabama, South Carolina, Tennessee. But they also have to play at Ole Miss, Oh, and they also welcome in the Tulane Green Wave to Gaylord Family OK Memorial Stadium in Norman. So, the the Green Wave. So, interesting. And, look, they're going to tweak this. They're going to change this moving forward. As Dawson mentioned, first year of the playoff, the expanded playoff will be 2024. You're going to see Greg Sankey and all the athletic directors and all the power brokers in the mighty SEC conference decide to tweak things based on how many teams they can get into the playoff, by the way. And if it helps them, Dawson, to go to nine conference games, then guess what's going to happen? They're going to go to nine conference games. But if they don't need to go to nine conference games, you know what's going to happen? they're not going to go to nine conference games. Yeah, obviously. I mean, they're going to act in that best interest of themselves, and that's part of the reason that we have a lot of issues in college football is that there's no governing body, and the conferences can act in their own best interest, but that's a conversation for a different day. Uh, one of the other microcosms of the scheduling that I think is interesting, it's already a thing right now with Georgia and Florida, uh, but it'll become a thing as well with Oklahoma and Texas. That team that gets the designated home game in the neutral site game has a slight kind of disadvantage um, in that given year because they have essentially one less home game, right? That's a neutral site game. Correct. But it has to be designated as someone's home game every year. So in that first year, Oklahoma gets Texas at home in theory, but of course that's neutral site, so they kind of lose a home game. Same way Florida will, uh, well, Georgia will lose the home game that year as well because they're playing Florida as the home team. So in those years, those teams are only going to have three SEC home games plus their four SEC road games, so a bit of a, a tough break, but, I mean, that's been going on for a while with Georgia and Florida. Correct. So, opponents are released. Expansion is coming. We don't know the exact dates, but we at least know who's home, who's away. And when the dust has settled here, it looks like LSU may have the most competitive overall schedule of any team in the SEC. I think you make a case for Tennessee like you did. Texas... But LSU has the tough conference games, and they have difficult non-conference games. And that includes them having to play Nichols in South Alabama because they're playing USC and UCLA. Now, once again, we have no idea how good either one of those teams is going to be Right, like Caleb Williams will be gone. I mean, there's so many different... Correct. There's no telling if they're even going to be good or not, right? And the same thing with the conference slate. Will Alabama dip... By next season, possibly. Could Tennessee regress? Yes. Could South Carolina be better? Yeah, you don't. It's year to year, right? So you really don't know. But if I'm a person that likes to put games on television, 
And I look at that schedule for LSU and I go, thank you. <laughs> yes, please. Yes, 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 yes. That's how that's going to work. And just a quick reminder on the on the thought that you just had there of it, uh, we don't know if these teams are going to be good. That's also why the ske- the strength of schedule logic sometimes where people say go play somebody. Like, again, I just mentioned UTSA. They were great last year, and that but that game was probably scheduled five years ago. And, like, Oklahoma, I was just looking, has a game scheduled against San Diego State in 2031. And, like, that might be a great game, but that also San Diego State might be 2-10 and 10 the year before that, and who knows, and then you're going to go, man, they didn't play anybody. And it's like, well, they decided on this game when the kids playing were five years old. So, I mean, who knows? Yeah, I mean, make the same thing. Correct. Because these schedules so far out, you have no idea. You have no idea. we got to take a timeout. When we return here on RP3 and Company, we'll put the college football talk aside, and we'll talk, well, college baseball. Let's get some College World Series previews in. TCU versus Oral Roberts and Florida versus Virginia. That side of the bracket we're going to look at and preview for you. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. College World Series begins tomorrow, D-Lo. Tomorrow. TCU takes on Oral Roberts. That'll be game number one. And then we'll get, oh man, which feels like a national championship series matchup with Florida taking on Virginia. Well, that's two teams right there that I could see easily win the whole thing there in Omaha. And then, of course, Saturday slate will be Wake Forest versus Stanford. That'll be your first game on Saturday. And then your nightcap will be LSU versus Tennessee. Let's start off with the side of the bracket that involves TCU versus Oral Roberts and Florida versus the Virginia Cavaliers. Florida... And Virginia have both been there. Florida and Virginia have won national titles in the last 10 years. The stage is not going to be too big for them. They're two powerhouses. Once again, this feels like an absolute national championship series matchup in the first game, in one of the first games for the College World Series. Let's talk Florida first. 50-15 50-15 and 15 okay. overall. They were 20-10 and 10 in the conference. They tied with Arkansas for the regular season title. They were the number two national seed. Their record against the Cavaliers is 5-3 and three all-time. They last met in the 2015 College World Series when Virginia eliminated Florida and went on to win the title. Florida on the mound... Their starting pitchers is easily one of its biggest concerns entering postseason play. And their group, D'Lo, has been excellent at times, but they have also gone through some big-time struggles. 
But the concerns through the first couple of rounds of the postseason, regional, super regional, didn't seem to be a big deal. So do we believe in enough in Florida's pitching staff against the Cavaliers, including being led by staff ace Brandon Sprout, to think that the Gators can win this opener game against the Cavaliers? Yeah, and I mean, look, I, I don't think Sprout's numbers indicate that he's an ace, but he did pitch pretty well against South Carolina in the Supers. He went six innings, gave up three runs. I think he would be your expected game one starter um, if they're going to keep the same rotation as the Supers, which is kind of what I've looked through here and seen everybody who threw in that game, uh, the game one of that series. Now, they do have Caglianon, who is going to be, you know, potential to start a game in this World Series, but also is going to be in the lineup every day as a two-way guy. And then Hurston Waldrop's been really solid all year. So, you know, does does Florida have the pitching depth? They have some really, really good bullpen arms, and I think their bullpen arms have actually been better than their starters at times. I would agree with that. So, you know, they've got a guy, a handful of guys in the in the pen that have right around a 3 ERA. Tyler Nesbitt, who was pretty electric at times in the postseason already. Cade Fisher, Philip Abner. Uh, if, if you get pitching from those guys, you're going to be okay, but they're going to have to be good because they're facing the nation's best offense average-wise in Virginia, a team that hits 335 as a club. Uh, Kyle Teal hitting 418. They also have Griffo Farrell, who's hitting 398. So not to bore you with stats here, but Virginia can hit, um, and they can really swing it. And I think, look, Virginia got beat by Duke in game one of a super, and history tells you it's not very easy to come back from that, but they were able to. Now, they and threw... the Cavaliers also have three good pitchers who have sub four ERA. And the Cavaliers, by the way, got all those guys in the transfer portal in the offseason from Army, Elon, and Coastal Carolina. Yeah, but... and they've and they've actually got four of them too. Uh, if you throw in Jack O'Connor, who's made eleven starts, but. Nick Parker's probably going to be their guy. He's 8-0 on the year, and he threw against Duke in that first game. Now, remember, they got beat, but he was pretty good. Six and two-thirds, six hits, three runs. Um, they ended up losing a 5-4 game in the late stages. It went back and forth um, before they bounced back and handled Duke in the next couple of games. So, uh, really good pitching matchup. Now, you don't have your featured aces. This is not a, a situation where it's um, Paul Skeens or against Rhett Lauder, where you would have against LSU and Wake Forest, but... Really, really good starting pitchers that are going to potentially yes. be uh, next-level players as well. So I think it's it's which offense can can outslug the other, uh, especially if you get into the bullpens. Now, it's interesting. I think it's a, it's a lot different matchup them playing in game one versus if these two teams play later on, which given their side of the bracket, there's a decent chance they'll find each other again. Um, because in this first game, you know, everybody's going to be fresh and have a bunch of different arms available to go to. So I think maybe you see a little bit more of a low-scoring game the first time around. But if these two teams play in, let's say, a regional, well, you know, it's not regional, a bracket championship situation where they've both played a few games already, uh, you could see some offensive fireworks in a really high-scoring game. And and keep an eye on the two guys, a couple of guys for Virginia as well at the plate because, as you mentioned, they have some really good hitters. Kyle Teal is their catcher. His slugging percentage is only 673. By the way, he has 69 RBIs and 13 home runs. He's only batting a crisp 418 on the season. That's what I call pretty good. And uh, But the sophomore, the infielder for the Cavaliers, Griff O'Farrell is batting 398 as well. And uh, he leads the team with 74 runs scored. So they have a guy, they have a big power bat in that lineup, Dawson, and they have a guy that gets on base a ton to help generate runs. So it, th this is this is one of those matchups that's going to be an absolute push for me 
They both have quality pitching. Florida's pitching is better on the back end and the bullpen than it is than I believe Virginia's is. They're two national seeds. They both have dynamic players in their lineup. They both know how to win a college world series. This is this is blockbuster on gay on day number one. Yeah, and Brandon, I might have said the wrong name, by the way. Brandon Neely's the guy for Florida who's kind of been that back-end guy um, and just been really locked down for them as of late. And if if they're able to get it, it's interesting, though, again, some of the numbers at this point in the year you can get fooled by, and we'll see that with Tennessee as well, I think. Some of these back-end you know, SEC relievers that maybe struggled at times throughout SEC play, um, but a lot of them have tremendous stuff, and we saw that from the young man for Tennessee who was throwing 103 miles an hour against Southern Miss the other night. So um, that's that's always the interesting thing, too, when you get deeper into this tournament. Now, it can be done because Coastal made a run, but the big-time power programs, mm-hmm. they have the depth. And, that's again, that's part of the reason why some of them are here. And so when, with Florida and, and Virginia and Wake and LSU, those four specifically, um, I think the longer this tournament goes, the better situations they're in, maybe with the exception of LSU because they don't quite have the pitching depth that some of the other teams have. And many Major League Baseball scouts, by the way, feel that uh, the winner of Friday's matchup between Virginia and Florida is going to win the whole thing. Like, that's a, a lot of people go, uh, whoever wins that game probably is, go- is going to have a great chance of winning the whole thing. Uh, it's possible, but they'd have to get past potentially a very hot TCU or Oral Roberts oh, team. Oh, that's, that's what called, our next matchup, matchup that, that's is. That's called there. transition. We go from a matchup between two 50 win teams with a ton of College World Series experience and winning titles to a different type of matchup between two of the hottest teams in the College World Series TCU Horn Frogs. 42 and 22 overall. They were only 13 and 11 in the Big 12, but don't let that fool you because they went on an absolute monstrous tear in the Big 12 tournament. And then they just carried that over into a regional and into a super regional as they were one of the non seeded teams to make it to Omaha. And they're going to be taking on Oral Roberts, a team that was one of the hottest teams entering postseason play. And yet they found themselves as a four seed winning a regional and then going on and winning their super regional matchup in dramatic fashion, by the way. The back and forth between them and Oregon was absolutely enthralling this past weekend. So we get TCU versus Oral Roberts. Horn Frogs on the mound, they're not great in team ERA. Nearly five a game. And, that, and they've been that way for most of the season. But, once again, it's about which team gets hot at the right time. Right, Dawson? Vast majority of TCU's best pitching has occurred over the course of the last month. Big 12 tournament, regional, super regional. So they're playing at they're playing their best at the right time. Yes. We keep mentioning that, that that matters. And we know what they can do at the plate. They have so many quality guys that can hit and horn frogs but here's the interesting thing about that as well as a whole for the season the horn frogs batted uh, are batting 299 and they strike out a lot but once again what happened in the big 12 tournament and in the regional and the super regional they got hot they got hot and they do like to be aggressive on the base paths 138 stolen bases for the horn frogs Oral Roberts Golden Eagles, 51 wins, 23-1 in the Summit League. 
but people were sleeping on him except for Dawson Iserlo. Yeah, no, look, Oral Roberts is um, is every bit of a 50-win team, too, and I think, look, I, it was, a lot of us were fooled by the Summit League, and, and, you know, it wasn't a great conference, and they dominated it, but then that's sometimes hard to gauge, and it turns out they were legit, and we saw that in Stillwater, and we saw it again in Eugene. Now, you know, it's interesting when you mention TCU. Now, their rotation, they haven't had a clear-cut rotation the way some of these teams have. Now, a lot of that's, you know, a variety of a, guys who weren't pitching well and injuries, things like that. Mm-hmm. The only guy they have that's been their consistent starter all year long is Cole Klecker, and that's who we're most likely going to see in Game 1 against Oral Roberts. Now, he's 10-4 and four with a 3-8-4. He's been a little up and down at times, but he was outstanding against Indiana State in the Supers. He went seven innings, three hits, no runs. He walked one and struck out nine. So, Klecker's going to get the ball first. Uh, I think the questions for TCU in this tournament kind of turn to as the tournament goes on. Um, can the guys who have pitched well as of late but maybe didn't pitch, pitch well all season, can they continue to do what they've done especially against potentially teams like Florida and Virginia on their side of the bracket but on the other end Oral Roberts look this is a fun story to get behind Um, pitching wise again their numbers are going to be a lot better but let's keep in mind they played in the Summit League and again that hasn't shown to matter too too much in how they've played but those numbers are going to be a little bit inflated Um, but they've got three legit starters and I think that's a key they had guys left when they played Oregon in the finale of the Supers now they had to win it with offense that didn't change but they're probably going to throw Jacob Hall in the first game. Now, Hall struggled. He went five innings, gave up five runs against Oregon. Remember, all those games were offensive kind of just outbursts. Those games were all 8-7, 9-8 right. type games. So they do have a guy in the back end in Kay Denton that I think if Oral's going to make a run here, if Oral Roberts is going to do something in this tournament, it's going to be about getting him the ball. He's got a one eight five ERA and 15 saves in 58 and a third innings pitch. He can give them two or three innings in an outing if he needs to. Um, he's one of the kind of best closing pitchers that we're going to see in this tournament. So it's about doing enough on offense to then turn it over to him. Jonah Cox can't talk about Oral Roberts without mentioning Jonah Cox because, listen, he, the guy's on a 48-game hitting streak, I believe it is now. He's going to have a chance to get it to 50. Um, he dropped a fly ball against Oregon that looked like it might cost him their season. Then he came up and hit a home run in his next at-bat. They find a way to walk it off. They win the next day, and here they are in the World Series. So... He's hitting over 400 with 11 homers. They've got a ton of guys that can swing the bats. They're fun. Now, I think the idea is that they, you know, at this time of the year, sometimes talent wins out, and maybe they don't have as many marquee, high-profile draft prospects as some of the teams they're going to face. Um, but to this point, that hasn't mattered, and that was the case in Stillwater, and they didn't seem phased at all. So uh, exciting matchup, and that's going to be the first game of the World Series. So something that's, that's quite an appetizer to get us going for the weekend. And Oral Roberts is one of two teams in the College World Series field that rank among the top 10 in Division I programs in both ERA and batting average. The other is Virginia. So, first day is going to be absolutely lights-out blockbuster. It leads us to our poll question of the day. Which national seed outside of LSU is your favorite in Omaha? Is it Florida? Is it Virginia? Is it Stanford? Or is it those demon deacons of Wake Forest. Right now, 43% of you say Florida, 37% say Wake Forest, 10% say Virginia, and 10% of you say Stanford. Keep those votes coming. Keep those comments coming as well on our poll question of the day. we got to take a timeout. We'll wrap up hour number one next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. 
RP3 is known across Acadiana as a master of the English language. You look at all the guys that they got. Clinton Anukoraru. Oof. And I don't know how to pronounce this young man's name. TJ Falola. More like a master of broken English, that is. They also added an inside linebacker, Casey Wasawi. These names are killing me, man. I even practiced <laughs> last night. Me fail English? That's impossible. Now back to that silky smooth delivery of RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Poll question of the day, which national seed outside of LSU is your favorite in Omaha? 43% of you say Florida, 39% say Wake Forest, 9% say Virginia, 9% say Stanford. Let's get to some comments. Ralph on the Twitter says, pitching will ultimately win in Omaha, and Wake has the best one-two on that list, although Florida is sneaky good. But go Tigers, happy Father's Day and U.S. Open weekend. B. Rad says, Florida, I'm not sold on Wake yet. I like the football schedule, but prefer Texas over Oklahoma because we've been looking forward to showing them the same hospitality that they showed us in 2019. Go Tigers! Things got a little chippy that year, by the way, between the Longhorns and the Tigers. <laughs> over in Austin, it was not a uh, well-documented, it was not yeah, a pleasant some, experience. There were some situations about where bands were placed and, mm-hmm. and a whole lot of yeah, nonsense. Yes, right? yes, yes. It was not, it was not, it was not great. Ton on Twitter says, I don't see any of them winning at all. But if I had to choose one, I guess Florida. Todd says, Wake Forest, number one national seed, not impressed. Florida, not impressed you being the number two national seed. Virginia, top ten national seed. Stanford, get out of my face. Doesn't see any of them being able to win at all. Keep those comments a-coming. Leaving them on Facebook and Twitter. We'll read them throughout today's show. Hour one is officially in the books. Hour number two coming up. We'll take your phone calls as well. Game hotline's open, 337-706-0111. You're listening to the game. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Everything, everything, everything gonna be all right this morning. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. We know who LSU is going to play, who all the SEC teams are going to play, in conference play in 2024. We know that there'll be who will be at home and who will be away. Just don't know the dates yet, but the schedule of opponents, both home and away, was dropped last night. Remember, the SEC opted not to go to nine games and instead only went to eight for 2024. That just... Just so happens, wait for it, I'm being told, the first season of the expanded college football playoff. It's amazing how that worked out. LSU, no Auburn. Don't know how I feel about that. That has been one of the more entertaining, weird, kooky, 
rivalries in the SEC and not going to have it for 2024. Also missing from the schedule for the LSU Tigers in 2024, the Mississippi State Bulldogs. The Fighting Cowbells, not on the schedule. But LSU's got a bit of a gauntlet. They may not have to play Auburn. And they may not have to play the Fighting Cowbells, which sometimes gives them trouble in recent years. But you look at this schedule, and it is what we like to call not easy. Non-conference Vegas kickoff classic versus USC at the spaceship in the desert. Allegiant Stadium is what it's officially called. I just call it the uh, looks like some prop from Star Wars that's just been placed in the desert. USC is the kickoff classic. Then they also have to play Nichols, UCLA, and South Alabama in non-conference play. Conference play. In Baton Rouge, they'll be taking on Ole Miss, Vanderbilt, Oklahoma, and Alabama. On the road in conference play for LSU, South Carolina, Texas A&M, Florida, and Arkansas. So they're going to play Arkansas, Florida, Texas A&M, South Carolina, Alabama, Oklahoma, Ole Miss. Sorry, Vandy. And then they're also playing UCLA and USC in 2024. Once again, we have no idea if those teams are going to be good or not. Heck, we don't even know if LSU will be good. We think they'll be good in 2024 based on how quickly Brian Kelly has turned things around with his recruiting and his coaching. But you never do know about these things. right? The the LSU team in 2024 is going to be without Jane Daniels. He'll be gone. Malik Neighbors will be gone. They'll be both headed for the draft. Will be Nussmeyer's time with a bunch of new guys. So we'll see. We'll see. Credit, though, LSU for not shying away from non-conference competition. I like the fact that they're playing USC out in the desert. Now, that's going to be more of a uh, home game, if you will, for the Trojans, as they only have to make the short drive from Los Angeles to Vegas. But you know good and well Mr. Isolow, who joins me here in the FCO Development Studios in Upper Lafayette, that there's already plenty of LSU fans planning that weekend extravaganza on Labor Day to Las Vegas, <laughs> which I don't know if Vegas is prepared for the thousands of LSU fans that are going to descend on its city and fully take advantage of everything Vegas has to offer. Yes, did you see it was a big day in Vegas because the Knights won the uh, Stanley Cup, so they were talking. I mean, there was all kinds of people partying in Vegas. Like, that's pretty big deal. They don't really get a chance to party over there often, so it was kind of nice <laughs> with the championship happening and everything like that. Um, but, no, the uh, – yeah, look, and I – again, when it came out, we had a, we did a whole thing on it. Um, you were a little strongly – more strongly opinion, opinionated about it than I was about the eight-game, nine-game thing. I'm okay with eight because I think it allows you to have more non-conference matchups, which I I enjoy seeing. I do think it's kind of silly now that you have a 16-team conference. Personally, I think 12 is the perfect number for conferences in general. I think getting to 14, I was still okay with. Um, And 16, to me, just doesn't feel like a conference anymore. It feels like a collection of teams. And so 
Um, as of now, there's going to be teams, yeah, that you don't see for a few years. And in order to make it to that, you do see them every few years. You have to sacrifice some of the regional annual rivalries that were something that was part of the best thing about college football. Craig, now you I'm can o- only grow for so much before you. Like I'm okay. You, you can't have it all. I'm okay with some of those rivalries not being completely annually just because, again, it makes it more exciting when it happens if it's not every year. It's different from, like, let's say, um, Nebraska and Oklahoma, like, never playing again, right? It's different from, like, some of those rivalries that we saw completely dismissed and dismantled when, you know, conferences shifted around and stuff like that. But, like, overall, I'm fine with the schedule, and I think it's it's pretty balanced, like you mentioned. Yeah, a couple of teams are always going to say this and that, and then again, we don't know. Somebody else could be – right now you think of, like, Georgia and Bama and then certainly, like, LSU and maybe Tennessee as, like, being the toughest draws, but that could l- completely change. We, we figure Georgia and Bama, for the most part, with how consistent they've been, and for the most part now LSU with Brian Kelly – but like other than that, I mean, Tennessee could be as gone as quickly as they got there at the top or, of the SEC. Or it could go the other way where Billy right. Napier's program takes a big step in year three in 2024, right? Does South Carolina keep building on the late season success it had last year and it's done really well in recruiting? Could the Gamecocks be more formidable in 2024? And will Oklahoma even have the same coach it has right now? I'm <laughs> just being honest. It did not go well. In year one of uh, Mr. Venable's tenure in Oklahoma, a lot of people. I got I got people up there. I got friends. I got people up there. Some people are like, uh, it's great that you're a defensive-minded coach. You do realize you need offense, right? It's just tough. He had to play. I mean, when you when you play a, a program like Florida State with Cheez-Its on the line in the Cheez-It Bowl, <laughs> it, was a, it was a losing battle, so I don't fault him for that one. But, yeah, disappointing oh, how overall. Could, how could you? How could you, bud? How could you? You can't do that. So, yes, LSU top to bottom seems like, once again, we, we don't know how good these teams are going to be, but just from a glance, I see a lot of nationally televised games on this schedule. It just starts off with USC, which is already going to be on ABC. That's the Vegas kickoff classic. UCLA is going to be a nationally televised game. Ole Miss usually is. Oklahoma, Bama, A&M, Florida. I mean, LSU's going to get a lot of television time based on this schedule for 2024. They just are. And that'll be the Nussbus time. Nussmeyer will be taken over as the starting quarterback we Possibly. Believe. I mean, who knows? Well, who knows? Did you see the Strohs game last night? Did I see the Houston Astros game last night? Or the ninth inning, specifically. You know, I did not because I checked in on the the Strohs. Look, you don't have to have your re. It's okay. We can't. We don't no, no. I checked in on the Strohs and I saw that they were up, and I was like, okay, that'll be good. And then I went to bed. Look, I don't. <laughs> I don't expect you to watch all one sixty two. That wasn't what I was asking. I just it, it was. It was baseball, and the funny thing too, was I was baseball. actually thinking about this. Uh, it's an absolute bonkers ending. I've seen the ending this morning. Yeah, and. I, this baseline rule that everybody loses their collective minds over, I don't understand all the I, – I don't – okay. Myers ran and – let's recap here. <laughs> here you, you, the Astros you need a, a moment? You need a moment? Yeah, I'll take a moment. Look, here. if you need a moment, I, we can talk about my Atlanta Braves beating the Detroit Tigers in game one of the doubleheader. But potentially losing a key reliever that looked like a not great injury, huh? No, uh, it's, not, it's not great. Carried off the field there. No. That was not good. That was but, not great. But we did win the doubleheader against the lowly Detroit Tigers. So that's good for you. Thank you. And your squad. 
Thank the you. ninth inning began with a four to one lead for the Astros, um, and it felt like things were going to be pretty smooth and orderly on a Wednesday night in the uh, in the league. Ryan Presley was in there to close it down. He's been pretty good in his career, right, and pretty decent this season. Not quite locked down as he's been throughout. Um, and then the defensive miscues kind of got going. Astros made a couple of key errors, and they gave up three runs to tie it up. It had a chance to to get bad there. They ended up getting out of the jam with a nice little race to the bag that was won by Jose Abreu. So thus started the bottom of the ninth inning. Kyle Tucker let it off with a leadoff single. And essentially, after a couple of more uh, plays took place, the Astros had the bases loaded with one out, a chance to win the game. Kevin Foote's favorite player, Jake Myers, at the plate. And Jake Myers hit a ground ball, fielder's choice. Now the infield's playing in, so they're going to go home to get the force out there. They get it. And then they try to throw Jake Myers out at first base. Now, Myers starts his path to first base in a little bit of an inside path. He's kind of on that grass. Yeah, he was. I'm I'm looking at the photo that Davey Martinez held up. Oh, yeah, that was hilarious, by the way. That was an all-timer. And also the video, I don't know why the the quality was in, but the video that that I've seen on social media made it look like it was shot in, like, 2004, so it gave me big time, like, Mike Gundy. I'm a grown man vibes from that uh, famous press conference. But anyway, um, the throw hits Jake Myers in the helmet, essentially, is they're trying to get the double play to end the inning, the Nationals are. And it hits his helmet, kind of ricochets into short right field. Jose Abreu comes home to score. Astros win. Everybody goes home happy. But Well, not not everybody. Well, not the Nationals. But no, no, not the Nationals. The no. Astros did. And, 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 and Skipper did. Davey Martinez was not No, happy. he wasn't too happy. No. Um, I'm sure he was uh, <laughs> thrilled when he got back to the hotel. Um, so, but, time out, so time out. So time out. You're telling me that Kevin Foote's least favorite Astro made some was part of some sort of winning play? Yeah, and you 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 worded that well. Part of some sort of winning play is kind of what it was. I wouldn't say he won them the game, and I wouldn't say he did anything tremendously impressive in in doing so. But in theory, he was the man responsible for the hit that. If he would have ran won the game. straighter, if he would have been running down on the actual line and not off of the line like he did. Yeah, here's the thing. I don't think anything's different. I don't think anything's different. I've watched you, the replay as well. Right. Now, the only argument you could make is that uh, Ruiz, I believe, the, the Nationals catcher, is that it, since Myers was kind of in the line, maybe he tried to adjust his throwing lane where he was throwing the ball. But he threw it back. Ac- he's out in front of the plate, right, because he's fielding a catch, and he threw it across his body and by the time the ball hits Myers, Myers is stepping on first base completely in the baseline because he's on first base, and it hits him in the back of the head. Yes. So I don't know if you can use the lot now based on the rule itself, which is this is this was my whole bigger point here. It's a judgment call for the umpires, and it's ridiculous what they have to do. The whole path of the baseline. I've seen guys hit a ball, which by the way, if, if you're you know if those are unfamiliar, when you hit a baseball from the right-handed batter's box, if you're a right-handed hitter, uh, it's impossible to only run on the line. Because guess what? You're starting at an angle, and you can't, unless you want to turn your body, take one step at a 90-degree angle to the right, and then turn like a robot, and then run straight down the first baseline, it's impossible to run on the line the entire time. So you have to allow the runner time to migrate over, and these runners, by the way, are trying to run as fast as they can and be safe at first base. Cause that's, well, that's why they, they, you have the extra space on each side of the line to be able to Right, and so, but my whole thing is that I... I Uh-oh. I don't know what you want guys to do. Now, this one is a little bit different because Myers was a couple steps probably further than he could have been. But for the most part, I've seen guys go on the baseline and then still get called out for obstruction or interference or whatever you want to call. Um, and to me, now, 
I'll tell you another option is using the softball, which softball is going to go to pretty soon here, having two first base bags, one for the runner, one for the fielder. That's an option. That completely takes the kind of mystery out of the play. It gives your catchers plenty more space. It gives you know any defensive player more space to throw the ball on the inside of the bag. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives the base runner kind of their own lane as well. It feels a little you know beer league softball to me to do that, but maybe that's what Major League Baseball ends up doing because of this rule. But this has come into play a few times, and, and the other problem I have with it, like again, last night the Astros got the benefit of the doubt. Could it have been called obstruction? Sure, some umpires might have called it. But every time these come up, it's so fine-tuned and and just vague about where the runner should be, where they were, if they made enough of an effort to get back into the baseline in the right amount of time. Like, I, every time I watch one of these replays, if you showed me probably 10 of these clips and said which one was ruled obstruction and which one wasn't, I don't know if I'd get half of them right because it's just too confusing to me. I don't know if you feel the same way. Uh, look... You've been you 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 you've been you've been hanging out with Kevin Foot too long about about umpiring and officials and, and calls. It, it's, it, it's in this all, case, I don't think it's the umpires and officials' fault. I think it's just a poorly designed rule. It was a baseball play. You look at the replay; he didn't obstruct. He was trying to get to the base. Plain and simple. But you buried the lead, bud. You buried the lead. You focused in on the end of the game, the result of the game. And you didn't spend time talking about guy, Jose, Jose Abreu. Abreu is red hot. He really is. And I mean, three look. for four, two runs scored, three ribbies, and he had himself a home run. And it's important to note too. And by the way, I was listening to the call. You know, our guys Robert Ford and Steve Sparks on the game last night on my way home in most of that ninth inning. And Jose Abreu beat out an infield single that was kind of hitting the hole, which that's a huge play because he ends up scoring the winning run. Kyle Tucker gets the leadoff single, but Tucker, remember, is the guy who is out at the force play at the plate that then leads to this attempted double play to, down the first baseline where Myers gets it out. So Abreu hustling that infield single out in the ninth inning ends up being a key play. And yes, he drove in a couple runs in the very first inning. He's starting to swing it. That is huge. Um, no, it's and it's so weird. And, and you know, for all of Foot's kind of inconsistent and uh, funny ways of thinking about baseball it is it, it's strange that Jordan goes down and all of a sudden Jose Abreu decides he wants to hit the ball and uh, but it's but it works and it's convenient so we won't complain and Dusty's approach of letting guys hit out of yeah and, and that's and right we old I school think, baseball but it works for this team and I think we were pretty consistent in saying now I Correct. did say look if this is a problem in August then we'll revisit and and also it's worth mentioning He's been hot for five games. It's not like he's fixed forever, and we're going to be like, "Oh, he's going to hit three hundred with thirty bombs." Like I, he might go back into his old slump, but he he certainly it doesn't even feel like it's not like he's had some blue pits here. He started to drive the ball, and I think that's the key there. And usually, you're I, getting more with what you pay for. Is he going to be the guy that you thought you signed in the offseason? Probably not. But that's fine. That's I mean, fine. You have to overpay for veteran productive players in Major League Baseball. If you want, if you don't have them and you want them, you have to overpay for there them. There you go. We got to take a timeout, but when we return, we'll talk more Astros, but not the good news. We just gave you the good news. Jose Abreu, Tucker, they all played well. The Astros got a win. Well, we'll talk about the losses they got yesterday as well. That's all coming up next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Want to join in the discussion with RP3? Then just give us a call on the hotline. You know the number. 
Niner, five, six, seven, eight. I can't hear you. You're trailing off. And did I catch a Niner in there? Were you calling from a walkie-talkie? No need to be embarrassed. Just call us at 337-706-0111. Back to more RP3 and company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Uh, we talked about the good for the Houston Astros yesterday as they were able to pull out a 5-4 victory over the Nationals. By the way, Framer Valdez, we didn't mention him. Uh, he allowed only one run on five hits with six Ks and seven innings of work. Lowered his ERA to 2.27. He's allowed one run or fewer in four of his last five starts. That's what we call very, very good. So let's get to the... Not so good. And I'm not talking about the fielding errors in some of the bullpen yesterday. Let's talk about the news that we got. Now, for all of you, though, all of those people asking, is it time to put Jeremy Pena on the milk cart? Missing? No, he was at the game. You can actually see him celebrating dressed in his uniform. Dusty Baker says even though he missed his third straight game with an unspecified quote, illness, end quote, he should be back in the lineup today on Thursday. So that's 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 fairly good news. The not so good news. Let's start off with the big fella, Jordan Alvarez. Remember when uh, he was put on the IL for, uh, it was uh, 10 days, right? It was, the, it was the 10 day IL, correct, Dawson? And we said, oh, it's only going to be 10 days. Well, Astros general manager Dana Brown announced that D.H. Jordan Alvarez could miss at least four weeks with that right oblique strain. Last time I checked, now you went to an esteemed institution like the University of Louisiana at Lafayette and Florida State University, two of them. My man's got two degrees. Last time I checked, four weeks is greater than 10 days. Yes? Yes. Okay, I'm just making sure I understand things. Um, Yeah. It's four to six, too, is what I've seen. And, and you're looking at all-star break. Like, let's just be real here. I mean, it, and it's, you know. This team is a little snake bitten this year. It's tough. Yeah, and again, that's why it's so impressive that they're 10 over 500. I mean, and they're right in the thick of things in the AL West. And then even if not the AL West and certainly the AL wildcard. So, you know, no, this is this is difficult because uh, we t- we've kind of said throughout, you know, throughout the early portion of the season, well, at least, they, at least they've got Jordan Alvarez who's driving in every single run possible. You know, it's also a shame because he was on pace to put together like an all-time. I mean, we're talking he, he had a chance to get to like 140, 150 RBIs type season. That's correct. Um, and obviously that's now going to go by the wayside unless he uh, decides to be the greatest hitter known to mankind last uh Two months. And, and um, how long is it going to take him to ramp back up whenever you get him back? That's yeah, the other thing we'll because, see. once again, it's the oblique, and we've talked about that. So much power for sluggers come from their oblique. So the when they said the 10 days, you we talked about it on the show. We're like, yeah. Like, it's just – it's going to be – I think you're right. I think it's going to be after the All-Star break. I think that's what I think that's the earliest you're going to see Alvarez back in the lineup for the Strohs. 
Maybe, maybe right before if everything goes well. Now, the good news in this, and so anyway, as far as on the field replacing Alvarez, again, it's really convenient that Jose Abreu found a way to hit the ball since Alvarez went down. Now, is he going to sustain it? Is he going to put up Jordan numbers? No. no. I mean, honestly, not many players in the history of baseball have done it at the rate that Jordan's done it in his first couple seasons in the big leagues, right? So you don't expect that. But you do think, again, if the rest of these guys continue to to get going, you do have Altuve back. Pena's going to be in the lineup today. Tucker, get him. Yeah, those guys him. have been swinging it. So, look, you're, you're, you've got enough length, and you've look, he's missed games in the past, and you've been able to overcome it. So, if the you news get on, Michael Brantley I was going to say, the back. news on Michael Brantley was a lot more optimistic. Now, we've heard that before, so let's uh, we, wait and see. But yeah, let's, let's pump the brakes because we've heard that before. The good now. thing about getting Alvarez back is that it's not a situation like Lance McCullers where you had to build him up into a throwing program but as we found out that throwing program is uh, not going to happen for quite some time now is it Alvarez is going to be out at least four weeks if not longer Brantley Brown says is running throwing and hitting he'll continue to be given more to do but a timeline on his return is still uncertain that's good though running throwing and hitting usually you do those types of things in baseball games. as a baseball player be you better. should be able to do I'm that I'm glad he's not like slicing onions or anything like that because he's doing things that are productive to baseball. Jose Arquiti is throwing off a flat ground over 100 feet. His expected return date is around or after the All-Star break. So Brown gave you updates on Alvarez, who now looks like that 10-day IL stint is going to be far more extended like it has been for every person they've put on the IL, by the way. Urquidy, probably after the All-Star break. Alvarez, probably after the All-Star break. Optimistic. And then maybe Brantley before. But the big news was Lance McCullers Jr. is going to miss the remainder of the season after having right forearm surgery Tuesday to repair his flexor tender tendon and remove a bone spur. I have questions. And our guy James Yasko had the same question, who writes about the Astros for the Houston Chronicle and talks about them on the Lima Time Time podcast, and we have them on every week, every Friday. Why was surgery done 611 days after he got injured? That's a legitimate question that needs to be asked because the injury that he suffered was last year, two years ago. So why... It's just bizarre to me. It's one thing to say, okay, well, I'm going to rehab and try to fix it that way instead of getting surgery. Okay. Once again, you have two degrees from two reputable institutions of higher learning. Yes. As you remind me, six hundred plus days is something you should be proud of. That's why I remind you, and you don't you don't talk about it enough. So I'm here to pump you up. That's my job, and that's why you're here. Thank you. This is why we're together on the air. 600 and some odd days. That's nearly two years, right? Yeah, it's yeah, it's in the ballpark. Somewhere. There we go. And we're just now waiting to do surgery. It's yeah, no, it, it and it always gets muddy when you're talking about medical situations because you just don't have all the information and you don't know what was said in the doctor's visits and anything like that. You know, I not to compare to myself to a world class athlete, but I will. Um, <laughs> I had a broken foot my junior year of high school, and it happened during summer baseball, and the football season was coming up, and I basically had a decision, and I was told, like, you can have surgery right now, and you'll be out this amount of time, or you can try and let it heal on its own. 
And the doctor essentially said, look, if you, if you get surgery and put the screw in it, that's, that's fine. It'll probably hold up. We prefer not to if we don't have to. So you have an option here. I chose not to. Uh, I probably missed a couple more. I missed, and I think I missed like two or three games to start the football season where if I got the screw put in, I might have made it for the start of the year. But long term, I avoided surgery and I think it ended up being better and, the, and it healed properly. Um, I don't know if this is a similar situation to that in that it was basically, look, you could do the surgery now, but, you know, we, we, we recommend you don't if you don't have to or whatever. But I think the interesting thing about it, right, is that it wasn't like when with my injury, I was told, like, if it doesn't heal the first time, then you'll just have to get the screw put in at that point. Right. And it sounds like that's not what happened with McCullers. He tried to come back. It didn't work. But so then he tried to come back again and it didn't work. And he tried to come back again again and didn't didn't work. And now he's having the surgery. So it does feel like along the line, it's at what point did they just want to do damage control and say, look, it's not working. Let's just get this fixed. Um, but I don't fully like speculating on that stuff because we don't know what happened every step of the way. And we know even less than we maybe would know in other situations because, again, the Astros don't tell us a Because whole lot. the Astros don't tell us anything. You're correct. Now, he's going to miss the remainder of 2023. The Astros released a statement saying that they expect him to return to pitching during the 2024 season. He originally injured the flexor tendon in his right forearm while pitching in Game 4 of the 2021 ALDS series versus the White Sox. The tendon was aggravated while throwing a bullpen session in West Palm Beach in February of this season. So he didn't have the surgery. He tried to heal on his own. That's what it appears to have happened. And then he re-aggravated it in February. And he, and again, worth noting, that's not the last time he pitched. He pitched in 2022, and he pitched in the playoffs as well. So he did come back from it. Correct. It's just clearly it was always bothering him. And I think... You know, he was actually very, very good in the regular season when he came back last year, but didn't pitch great in the playoffs. And you certainly wonder if that was irritating him at the time. But I would agree to that. So it leads me to this, this because we've speculated about this for a little while, right? You and I have that we don't see, see him coming back. The big fella is going to be out for a month now, right? We don't know when Michael Brantley's coming back. We expect him to come back, and we expect Jose Arquiti to come back as well. Maybe, but we've seen setbacks happen before. Do you think with this rash of injury news and a season that has been riddled with injuries for the Astros starting in the preseason through now, through training, through spring training when Altuve got injured during the World Baseball Classic, do you believe that Dana Brown is going to be instructed by his owner to say, hey, we need a veteran arm and we need a veteran bat? Well, there's a guy, and, and I don't know, a lot of people probably don't know about this one. This was something I kind of found in doing some research. There's a guy they could get. He's a Japanese kind of prospect guy coming up. He pitches and he hits, and he plays for the Angels. They could Stop. maybe try to make Stop. a deal Devil. for Never a guy happen. named Shohei Otani. I don't think the Angels are trading him. Uh, no, I don't either, and I've already argued with Foot about it. But, yeah, no, I, I they'll probably make a deal, certainly. Now, who's it going to be for? Are they going to emphasize pitching? Here's the great thing about all this. Right now, if you looked at the beginning of the season and said, uh, you're going to miss Altuve for four weeks. You're going <laughs> to miss Brantley for the whole season at the beginning, and, and we'll see if he gets comes back. You're going to lose Luis Garcia for the whole year. You're going to lose Lance McCullers for the whole year. You're going to lose Arquiti for two months. You're going to lose Jordan Alvarez for six weeks. And you'd say, oh, my God. And then specifically with the pitching, you'd say, Luis Garcia and Lance McCullers are gone. Man, they've got to be scrambling for starting pitching. They're not. There's not even going to be a move made today because they have guys, and they've had – Brandon Belak pitch fine, and they've had J.P. France pitch fine, and they've had Ronald Blanco pitch fine, 
and they've had Hunter Brown look like a potential ace in the making, and mm-hmm. uh, Christian Javier's been solid, and they still, by the way, all those injuries and two of your starters, probably your number two and number three starter on paper in the offseason right out for the year, and you still lead the entire major leagues in ERA. So, all things considered, they 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 will make a move, and I They'll think it would be smart move. to, be, but they don't even have to, really. They really they don't will, have to. But they will because they want to go back-to-back. So, they feel like their window is now. Dusty didn't come back for them to to not. So, I think they make a move. I think it's a mid-level move, though. In both, I think they go get themselves a middle tier guy that can hit, and they'll get a middle tier pitcher just to beef it up, just to be, just in case. Because once again, you don't know about Urquidy. We expect him to come back, but if you lose, you know, right now you're down two starters, two starting pitchers that you thought you were going to have for the season, and actually a third is on the IL. So. The Astros tend to be aggressive, and I could see them doing that. We got to take a timeout. We ran long there. Good Astro talk, though. When we come back here on RP3 and Company, we'll take those phone calls. Game hotline's open, 337-706-0111. We'll preview the rest of the College World Series field. LSU versus Tennessee and Wake Forest versus Stanford. Those matchups we'll discuss next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on The Game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. We went in and gave you a preview on one side of the bracket. Let's do the other side of the bracket for the College World Series. And let's start off with Wake Forest versus Stanford. The Demon Deacons have destroyed everyone they have faced in the postseason in a regional and super regional play. Just mowed them down. And against Alabama in the super regional, a one-run game in game one, and then they decided to use Alabama's pitching staff as glorified batting practice and just launched ball after ball after ball after ball. And they may have the deepest pitching staff of any team in the College World Series. They're the number one overall seed. Working against those Deacons, though, as Todd Walker, the LSU baseball legend, College World Series champion, pointed out, no number one seeded team has won the College World Series title in more than 20 years. And here's the other thing. Their ballpark in Winston-Salem is not what they're going to be in in Omaha. So they're not going to be in the friendly confines of their home park. They're going to be in Omaha. The park's going to play different. That's going to be part of it. They had a monster year. Number one, Overall seed for a reason, and deservingly so. But history suggests them making a run and winning the title. History is against Wake Forest for doing that. Now, they'll take on a team that won in inexplicable fashion (laughs) as Texas lost a pop-up in the lights 
that allowed the winning run to score in the winner-take-all game in the Super Regional. Stanford also had a pitcher throw 156 pitches, which seems a little extra to me. So how much is he going to have left in the tank to pitch during their College World Series run? Stanford has been there now three straight years. And they have a history on their side as they have experience. But this is a fascinating first game on Saturday to me, Dawson, is Wake Forest has the arms. They have the deepest pitching staff. They're the number one overall seed. They're the best team in the country. But we know what happens to number one seeds in Omaha. It hasn't been kind. So how do you like this matchup between Wake Forest and Stanford? Yeah, I like... I think the factor that makes more sense to actually go against Wake in in a way here is the ballpark thing. The one, the number one seed thing, I, I get it. I think that's more of a situation of how much parity there's been and how how many years the number one overall seed hasn't been dominant. Um, there were a couple years where it was certainly, and and mm. you know some of the years with Vandy that they were they were pretty pretty good. But Oregon State as well. Uh, yeah, I just don't think that's. A real factor here. I don't think Wake's playing with the pressure of oh, the number one seed hasn't succeeded. But I do think there's take some... that Todd Walker. Oh no! I, and look, it's a, it's an interesting note, and I think it's worth mentioning. I just don't <laughs> think it actually factors into the games here. But no, I'm not. Uh, but it is history. Yeah, and it's a thing. It, 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 it is a thing. And so. um, now, I think the ballpark thing really kind of might matter here, just because they are able, they are used to being able to hit the ball out of the park consistently. And yeah, some of those turn into deep flyouts at Charles Schwab Field. But the thing to remember here is that they do have the deepest pitching staff. If you want to nitpick at their pitching staff, their starters have been better than their relievers in some ways. Um, They do have some real back-end guys, though. And the thing is that they have so many guys that are quality arms. Um, Their guys, when when you look at LSU and you get down to like guys like Riley Cooper and Ackenhausen, who you trust to an extent, those guys in Wake Forest pen are all guys with sub-3 ERAs, right? Those guys that are mm-hmm. fourth and fifth options. So that's their big advantage. Um, Stanford, look, they've got a guy in Tommy Troy who's one of the best players in the country, one of the best hitters. He has been for a while now. Uh, they hit the long ball exceptionally well as well, which is interesting, you know, because you think about – sometimes you think of West Coast baseball as being a little bit more small ball style. Uh, they'll go big. Now, yeah, they meant, you mentioned Quinn Matthews, who's threw 156 pitches – you're obviously not going to expect him to throw in game one. At least I wouldn't, based on how much he threw most recently. Um, they actually went with, you know, in the first game against Texas in that Super, which you'll remember, that's the game they lost 7-5, to five and they blew that big ninth-inning lead, and it looked like they were in trouble. They started Joey Dixon, who went four and two-thirds for him, so I'd expect him to get the start in game one. Um, so that's another thing that's interesting here. Wake Forest could have the advantage of not facing, you know, quote-unquote their best guy just because Quinn's been that recently, but they threw Quinn in Game 2 in the Supers, so they probably won't throw him right away, especially given how much he threw in that game was, remember, on Sunday because their final game was on Monday. Correct. Um, So some of that factors in. I think Wake's the better team here, and I think they will, you know, Rhett Lauder, he gave up a couple runs against Alabama. He looked human. He still gave him six and a third and was good. So can Stanford get to Red at all and, and kind of make this more interesting? And, and can they slow down those bats? We'll see. But I think Wake's the uh, most complete team in the field. They're also making their first College World Series appearance since 1955. Stanford's now making their third straight. And that matters. So that's that's look, I agree with you. I like Wake to win this matchup. Wake is the best team in the country. But... They're going to be facing off against programs as they try to march to a national title 
against teams and programs that have experience in Omaha. That usually matters. It just does. So Wake is the best team in the country. They have the best pitching staff of any team in the College World Series. But this is their first time playing in it since 1955. So, and, that, and that's when they won it all, by the way. Their lone national championship in baseball. I mean, that team was legendary. Oh, they, absolutely. It was like it was yesterday. Absolutely it was. So, we'll see. I like Wake to win a couple of games. I really do. But we'll see. We'll see what happens. We'll preview, obviously, LSU and Tennessee on tomorrow's show as we ramp up for the College World Series. Once again, go vote on our poll question of the day. Leave your comments, your thoughts, if you will, on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll share some of those coming up after this timeout. You're listening to the game. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Do you think RP3 is the only nickname Ray has? Think again. There was Little Vainant. There was Little Foot, Little Bubba. There was LD, which stood for Little Dufo. There was Ray Dog. There was Ray Diggity Dog. There was Fish. There was Fish Face. There was RP3. There was even Ramundo from El Segundo. Back to the host with more nicknames than he knows what to do with. RP3, right here on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles. Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Which national seed outside of LSU is your favorite in Omaha? That's our poll question of the day. Right now, 46% of you believe it's the Wake Forest Demon Deacons. Once again. Speaking of Wake, was your favorite player off the 1955 team, was it first-team All-American Linwood Holt, or was it Lefty Davis who was given first-team All-ACC honors but was left off the All-American team that year? I, it was an atrocity that uh, I mean, Davis that, that, was left off that And that, that run team. through the District 3 tournament and then into the College World Series, oh. I mean, it's just it's it's an all-timer. And, and Luther McKeel was another first-team All-ACC selection. I mean, it was... We were watching history in front of our, and we didn't even know it. Forty-six <laughs> percent of you say Wake Forest, who is making their first trip to the College World Series since 1955, when they won it all. Thirty-five percent of you say Florida is the best national seed outside of LSU. Eleven percent of you say Virginia. Eight percent say Stanford. Doug E says, "I'm hoping Virginia and Stanford." does us a solid by knocking out their opponents, getting those heavyweights out of the way. I'm wondering if Tennessee holds their ace for game number two. Anyway, go Tigers. Be interested to see who Tennessee does throw, right? Because Skeens was really good in their first matchup during the regular season. Only gave up the one run on five hits, struck out 12 in seven innings of work. So, once again, that could be a bit of a a, a matchup nightmare uh, for Tennessee having to face Paul Skeens. But we'll see what Tennessee does with their pitching staff. I'll be interested to see who they throw. Salty Steve says, I think pitching will be the downfall of Wake Forest, even though they have the best pitching staff in the College World Series. He says, that makes Florida the only viable option for me, hoping the final will be Tigers versus Gators. This man wants 2017 all over again. 
Always enjoyable to beat SEC rivals. Hashtag go Tigers. Oh. Wake Forest has the best pitching. I don't, I don't see that happening. I see Wake Forest winning some games. Do I see them winning the national title? No. I think I probably like Florida a little bit more. Or even Virginia. But it wouldn't surprise me if Wake won. They're the best team in the country. Rightfully so. You got the best pitching staff in the College World Series. Keep those votes coming on our poll question of the day. Which national seed outside of LSU is your favorite in Omaha? We got to take a timeout. Hour two is done. How are we going to kick off hour number three? How about we talk Saints minicamp and New Orleans Pelicans offseason with Les East of CrescentCitySports.com. That's next right here on The Game. Live from the Delta Media Studios in Upper Lafayette, here is producer Dawson Iserlow and your big, bald, beautiful host, Raymond Parts III, better known as RP3. Hour number three has arrived on this edition of RP3 and Company. Coming up half an hour from right now, scheduled to join us is Bob Nightingale from USA USA Today, Major League Baseball reporter, columnist. Don't forget to also vote on our poll question of the day. Which national seed not named LSU you believe has the best chance of making a run at the College World Series? Is it Florida? Is it Virginia? Is it Wake Forest? Or is it Stanford? Go vote and leave your comments on Facebook and Twitter, and we'll make sure to share them throughout today's show. But right now here on the RP3 and the company, with the big, bald, and beautiful one, yours truly, and of course the producer extraordinaire, a.k.a. Two Degrees, a.k.a. the son of Iceman, a.k.a. the multimedia superstar Dawson Islow, we're going to talk New Orleans Saints minicamp, one of Dawson's favorite things to discuss, as well as Pelican's off-season questions with our guy, the award-winning reporter, columnist, and a man who's a fabulous dancer, Les East from CrescentCitySports.com joins us. Les, good morning. How are you? I'm doing well, Raymond. How are you? I'm doing good, bud. I'm doing good. I'm gearing up to make my first trip to Omaha to cover a couple of the games of the College World Series and uh, so I'm I'm looking forward to seeing a lot of God's country on the way on the drive. Do you like beef? <laughs> I do. I do enjoy beef. Yes, sir. Well, there are about 200 really good beef places in Omaha, so enjoy. <laughs> Thank you, bud. Thank you for that. All right, so let's get uh let's start with the Saints first and foremost. Mini camp is upon us, and you know I remember a time where. We didn't care all that much about OTAs and minicamp, right? But the NFL is now 365, and we pay attention to these things far more than we used to. So minicamp has been going this week. Anything particularly stand out to you about what you're seeing down there in Metairie at the training facility? No, not really. Uh, you know, these things are, are the way they're set up is it's 
it's really just uh, it's seven-on-seven drills for the most part. And, and so it's quarterbacks, receivers, DBs are the ones that have an opportunity to stand out. The, the linemen uh, don't really have much of an opportunity to show anything when they're not in pads. They can, they can demonstrate footwork and quickness and stuff like that. But it doesn't mean a whole lot when they're not going against others in a football situation in a game so yeah i think i've said this before is the main thing is you just don't want to see red flags guys who keep dropping passes or making mental mistakes uh or just don't look like they don't or don't look like they belong there and i haven't seen any of that which is good for the saints uh, so, you know, again, it's the, the, the pitch and catch, you know, Mike Thomas being out there on a limited basis to work with Derek Carr, uh, is helpful for the team. Uh, Chris Olave, I think has, has shown well and the, the chemistry between him and, uh, Carr is also significant. Rashid Shahid had made some big plays before he uh, was sidelined by a groin injury. So, uh, you know, generally the skilled players that you would expect to stand out in this situation have stood out. So I would say nothing negative has uh, emerged, uh, but that doesn't mean that everything's great. It just means you haven't seen anything that you don't want to see at this time of year. Is the biggest thing during this time with OTAs and the workouts and mini camp and everything like that, is it the biggest thing, the biggest thing for the Saints, is it Derek Carr just developing a rapport with his receiving core and his offensive line? I mean, isn't that what this is all about, really? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I think it, it, it's that. It, it's also, uh, you know, him getting um, second nature with the offense, being able to step into the huddle and, and understand exactly what the options are, being able to communicate it to the other players without having to think about it. And, uh, you know, generally speaking, the whole off-season program really is about getting everyone, especially the newcomers like Derek Carr, uh, to a place where every moment of training camp is efficient so that they're not learning stuff, they're not trying to understand the terminology, they're not – hesitating because they're not sure of uh, the, what play they should be calling in this situation. It's so that everybody on day one of training camp is up to speed and comfortable with one another, that they can operate at maximum efficiency in the training camp practices and then ultimately the preseason games. So this is all uh, preliminary stuff to make training camp go efficiently and maximize the the productivity once they get the training camp. Les, I know we've we've already kind of mentioned it a little bit in some of our previous conversations, but the opportunity for the Saints here is pretty large given the situation in the division and I saw they have, you know, according to who you look at, not only the easiest schedule based on last year's records, but some of the easiest schedule based on projecting out with Vegas win totals. Like, is there a feeling that this is an opportunity that they need to take advantage, just given that you don't get a schedule like this every year? Yeah, I, I don't know that they focus that much on the schedule because, they, you know, the, that's just the way players and coaches are, is they, they stay focused 
on the task in front of them and they respect the opponents and they try not to project things ahead. So I think that they're looking at it as an opportunity they need to take advantage of mainly because one, you have a head coach and a coaching staff that was under fire last year in their first year. They've made a lot of changes on the coaching staff and they know they have to do better. And also I think, they sense that this is a talented roster. Some of their more important players, especially on the defensive side with Cam Jordan and Demario Davis, is getting a little bit old. Uh, there's some uncertainty about Alvin Kamara's availability. You know, Mike Thomas has had three injury uh, plague seasons in a row. So, you know, th- this group is not going to be together a whole lot longer. And so there's an opportunity, I think they believe, to to get in the playoffs, maybe win the division, maybe make some sort of run in the postseason. And so, yeah, they they believe there's an opportunity here they need to take advantage of. But I don't know that strength of schedule is something they pay a whole lot of attention to. Do you think, and you mentioned – the scrutiny of the coaching staff last year, and certainly it, there's often differences between the fans' perspective and the organization's perspective, but do you think inside that building it's being viewed as a make-or-break season for Dennis Allen, or do you think that they have a different view on things? Well, yeah, I don't know if the term make-or-break is exactly right, but I think that that's kind of in the neighborhood. I mean, I, I think they are feeling a need to see much better um, productivity out of this team this year. Now, part of last year's evaluation was the fact that they lost so many games to key players because of injury. And so I think they're figuring if this team, especially with the upgraded quarterback, if this team has a little bit better luck with health, it should win several more games than it won last year. And if they don't, then they're going to have to take a long, hard look at, at the coaching staff. So, yeah, I, I think they are definitely expecting significant improvement from the coaching staff and the team this year. We're talking with Les Cease of CrescentCitySports.com. He joins us here on RP3 and Company. All right, let's shift gears from the gridiron to the hardwood. And lots of reports out there saying that the New Orleans Pelicans – are interested in getting into the top four of this year's draft, possibly the top three that's been out there. Uh, My question to you, Les, is two parts. One, do you think that's an actual thing? And the second part of that is, how could they possibly get up from 14 all the way up to, say, three or four without having to trade one of their all-star centerpieces? Well, uh, first off, uh, as to whether they are discussing the possibility of moving up, you know, I think probably every team in the league is discussing virtually every possible scenario at this point. Uh, so, you know, whether it's just one of many conversations that routinely happen this time of year or whether it's something they're aggressively pursuing or two different things, I think this probably – uh, falls in in between those two somewhere. I, I do believe that David Griffin has a very high opinion of Scoot Henderson and would want to explore ways of possibly getting high enough to pick him. I'm not sure that he's 
uh, hell-bent on it, where he would give up whatever is necessary to do that. So I think there are discussions going on there. Whether or not it's something they're determined to do, I, I think that's less likely. Now, as far as what it would take, I have a hard time envisioning them getting up that high without giving up either Ingram or Williamson. I, I would think one of them probably would have to be part of that package uh, unless one of the teams uh, in the top three or four doesn't have uh, a real appreciation for the opportunity they have with that draft choice. So, uh, you know, I think that's a, a very difficult, complex, and necessary discussion that Pelicans are having now. Are we ready to get rid of one of our big two? And if so, which one is it going to be? That leads me to my next question. Lots of uh, chatter, if you will, about Zion, you know, everything that's going on with him off the court, the injuries and everything like that, that, you know, I keep getting asked yet again, another offseason where his name is being brought up as being traded. I don't think it's going to happen because I don't think David Griffin's going to trade away the guy that he made the face of the franchise. What do you say about the the trade rumors and people asking once again, would Zion Williamson be traded this offseason? Well, I, I think David Griffin and the entire organization is tiring of having to talk about non-basketball stuff with Zion. But that doesn't mean you just give up on a generational talent. So I, I tend to agree with you that it's uh, not likely to happen, although I don't think it's impossible. But First of all, if Zion Williamson is healthy enough to play in, say, 60 games next year and continues to progress on the court the way he has, nobody is going to care about anything else. Everything else will go away magically because they'll be in the playoffs and they'll be really good and he will have played the majority of the season. I have no idea if that's going to happen. But uh, everything is secondary to him being healthy because we know how good he is when he is healthy. So that's where it all begins and ends, all the talk about social media and this other stuff. That that just kills time during the off season. So it's all about him being healthy and being available to play. And so I think he's just now entering the first year of the max deal. Um, he's only played a, a, a small part of one season under Willie Green, who looks like he's going to be a very good coach in this league. The top three players were together for 10 games last year. So it would be a little bit of a panic move, I think, to get rid of him at this point. I think you got to give it at least one more year. Now, I do think you have to have a sit-down with Zion and his camp and express the fact that he's turning 23 in a, in a, f- a couple of weeks, and it is time for them to start seeing him act in the manner that is expected of a mature professional basketball player about to make a gazillion dollars who is mostly responsible for leading this team into a deep playoff run and he needs to start showing a greater level of maturity and professionalism and commitment now. Les, appreciate your time as always. What's the latest you got up at ChristenCitySports.com, my friend? 
Yeah, I've had a couple of uh, stories from mini camp. On um, the, one was the the fact that Alvin Kamara and Marshawn Lattimore and Taysom Hill all uh, joined in with the mandatory mini camp this week. Uh, none of them have spoken yet. We're hopeful that Taysom is going to talk after practice today. We are not expecting Alvin Kamara to talk based on his body language in turning down interview requests the last two days. He ain't talking until the court case is over, and uh, we're not really expecting Lattimore to talk. Yesterday I wrote about the defensive line, new coach, a lot of new players there, and uh, if things go according to plan, I'll have something on Taysom Hill later today. If not, I'll figure out something else today. Huh. My man is busy, busy, busy. Keep up the tremendous work. Les, thank you for your time, brother. Thanks, guys. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. A recent survey discovered that game listeners prefer our station over watching a mandated webinar at work. Oh, thank you, everyone, for coming to this exciting meeting today to discuss... Take that, productivity in the workplace. This is The Game, 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. We have a rebuttal about Wake Forest pitching staff. Are you prepared for this, Dawson? Yes. Okay. All right. Here we go. Our guy, Salty Steve, who made the original comment about Wake Forest's pitching may be their downfall, even though they're the number one seed and they have the deepest pitching staff heading into the College World Series. He says, quote, Wake Forest's pitching numbers are padded. Before the regionals, they faced four ranked teams on their entire schedule. Put them in the SEC, and they are a 500 team. Look how good LSU's pitching looked in its regional and super regional. It makes a difference which conference you play against. Now, my rebuttal to the salty one is, The ACC isn't exactly trash. Virginia is in the College World Series. Duke made it to the Super Regionals. Miami was a national seed and regional host. Clemson was a regional host and a national seed. And North Carolina was an at-large team. So it's not as if they were a conference of trash this season. Yeah, I've said this before. The SEC is clear-cut the number one conference in college baseball. The ACC it's clear-cut the number two conference college baseball. There's a big gap between the ACC and the rest of the field as far as conferences. And didn't NC State make it into a regional two? Yeah, they sure did. Um, so, wait, he said, what, they'd finish middle of the pack in the SEC? Is that he what said you they'd said? be 500. Alabama was above 500 in the SEC, and Wake Forest beat them 22-5 to last week. So, I, I just fully, fully disagree 100%. But it's fine. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Um, and again, that doesn't mean Wake's going to win the College World Series. It doesn't mean it doesn't even mean they're going to beat Stanford uh, on Saturday. But I think the idea that you know Foot has strong opinions about comparing conferences, and I think it's kind of warranted there. But yeah, no, Wake uh, Wake absolutely dominated a team that was better than 500 in the SEC last weekend. So I don't know if that's really warranted. And, and, and his response: Aren't there three SEC schools in Omaha? Come on, Ray, of the eight, and there's two teams from the ACC. So I. I 
I, <laughs> you just want to dismiss Wake Forest. Like, you say that their pitching is not going to be – okay, yeah, there's three SEC teams in the College World Series. There's two from the ACC. I don't understand. Like, there's only one difference, one team difference there. Yeah, three of the eight. No, look, two of the I'm, eight I'm are not, coming from the ACC, including the number one overall seed. I, I just, yeah, I, I'm not saying Wake Forest is going to win the national title. No, and, and look, but are, to discount them, like, I'm not fully dismissing his comment. Like, are the numbers padded a little bit? Because look, is the bottom half of the ACC uh, maybe a little worse than the bottom half of the SEC, or maybe that middle tier? Sure, like that's why the SEC has the number one numbers, and that's why they have three teams as opposed to two. But yeah, it's not. Look, if I think his argument would be way better suit for comparing like Oral Roberts pitching numbers, which I think certainly are inflated because they play in the Summit League. So that would be my 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 response to his response to my response. <laughs> I just I don't get it, man. Like and, and here's the thing. We can sit here and tell you all about different types of numbers, and we can sit there and do the hypothetical situation, which I always love, by the way. I, I always love, well, if this team was in the SEC, they'd be trash. Well, really? Like, like, really? You don't, you don't know that. And, and, and you really don't know that about baseball. You want to know why? You, know, you want to know why you don't know about that baseball? Because anything can happen. Anything can happen in baseball. That's what makes it so special. That's what makes it so unique. The most iconic moment in LSU baseball history, by the way, was a total surprise. Warren Morris's walk-off home run against Miami. The most iconic play in college baseball history was unexpected. No one in a million years, not even Skip Burtman, thought that Warren Morris was going to hit a home run in that moment. So... Baseball's the great equalizer. We talk about it all the time. Great teams don't necessarily win the national championship in baseball. Ole Miss barely got into the tournament last year and won the whole thing. We've seen Coastal Carolina win the whole thing. And who did Coastal Carolina beat that year to get to Omaha? We've seen LSU lose to Stony Brook. Baseball happens. So we could talk about numbers and rankings and what if scenarios if they were in the SEC, if they weren't in the SEC, but we've seen LSU dominate teams and we've seen LSU lose to teams that aren't from the SEC, by the way. We've seen it happen. So anything can happen because it's baseball. It's baseball. Let's head out to the hotline. Welcome on, Kyle, to the show. Kyle, good morning to you, brother. What's on your mind? Uh, well, I mean, you just said everything now. <laughs> exactly what I was going to say. You got people calling up trying to discount Wake Forest. Wake Forest is a great baseball team. It's like Just because you might be scared of them doesn't mean that they're, they're any less or they play in a lesser conference. Exactly the points that you just made. Who was saying anything about Ole Miss last year and they won it all? I mean, we TCU... You know, kind of flying under the radar. They they weren't regional hosts, were they? You know, they went and beat Arkansas. They they could do anything. It's like I'm glad they made it to Omaha. You know, uh, the Tigers. And now it's baseball, exactly like you said. Now it could be anybody. That's why it's such a fun, um, you know, ending 
to a sports year. It's one of the most exciting tournaments, in my opinion, uh, because, like you said, absolutely anything can happen, and the, the playing field is so level at a point to where, you know, Oral Roberts could win the thing. I, I win, I wouldn't be surprised. Anything can absolutely happen, and that's what makes it so special. And that's what makes it so special, is because unlike football, baseball is the great equalizer because anything can happen because you can have one off day on the bump, your ace could have not his great stuff, and you could lose the game and be sent home. This is how this works. This is what makes it so amazing. And I can't wait. Look, I want to see LSU versus Wake Forest. I hope that's the matchup we get on Monday while I'm there in Omaha because I want to see it. Because that would be blockbuster. I would love to see that. But this notion that Wake Forest doesn't belong, it's just, it's just unrealistic, man. It's just unrealistic. I totally agree. All right, buddy. Appreciate the phone call. Enjoy your day. Yeah, have a great weekend. And to the point of, you know, the SEC, yeah, some of those ACC teams got knocked out by SEC teams. You're right. You're, you're exactly correct. You're exactly correct. Miami loses to Texas and gets eliminated from their own regional. Clemson gets eliminated from their own regional, right? That all happened. Arkansas was the number three national seed, and what happened? What happened to Pig Suey? They got sent home. Baseball happens. That's what makes it the perfect game because unexpected things can happen any given day, any given weekend. That's why I think this College World Series is going to be absolutely phenomenal. Got to take a timeout. When we come back, we'll keep talking about the perfect game, baseball, with Bob Nightingale from USA Today. Columnist reporter will join us. That's next right here on The Game. This is RP3 and Company on The Game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. This is RP3 and Company. Live from the Evco Development Studios in Upper Lafayette on the game. 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Hey, just a friendly reminder, Astros will wrap up their series against the Washington Nationals tonight for Minute Maid Park. They've won the first two games, including last night's dramatic walk-off win with a, uh, well, Kevin Foote's favorite player getting hit in the back of the head while trying to run to first base. They'll try to go for the sweep against the Nats, and you can listen to it right here on the game, 1037 Lafayette, 1041 Lake Charles. Astro launch begins at 6.40. First pitch for Minute Maid Park is set for 7.10. That's live Astros baseball in Southwest Louisiana Sports Station. Don't forget to get those votes in on the poll question of the day, and we'll finalize that before we sign off today here on RP3 and Company. But right now it's time for us to talk Major League Baseball with the columnist reporter from the USA Today Network. Bob Nightingale joins us now. Bob, good morning to you, brother. How you been? Yeah, doing great. Thanks. Well, let's get right to it. And I, I want to start off with the Astros and the American League West because I don't think things have gone as expected at this point of the season for that division. The Rangers, despite having some injuries, 
They're leading the division, even with Jacob DeGrom now going to be lost for the year. The Astros, even with all their injuries, and there's been a plethora of them to their pitching staff and to their lineup, they're only three and a half games back. But Seattle sits there below 500. What do you make of what you've seen from the AL West so far? Yeah, I mean, the Astros are hanging tough. I mean, just a uh, crush with injuries. You know, two of me up for two months. Alvarez now won't be back until late, you know, late July. And old Brantley, uh, you know, missing a uh, two, three starters. So, yeah, they're hanging in there. And Texas has done a wonderful job with uh, Bruce Bochy, pretty much the same team as a year ago. It shows what difference a, a manager makes. So it should be a, uh, a great two-team race down the stretch. Uh, Angels are hanging in there. Uh, I don't see the Angels win the division, but more as a uh, wild card. And uh, I'm not sure what to make of the Seattle uh, Mariners. They've been a uh, bitter disappointment. Uh, give me your thoughts on the Oakland Athletics situation. I loved when I saw the fans the other night come out and do the reverse boycott. Uh, I know ownership always likes to blame the local municipality and the fans, but this is a franchise that's had a ton of success in the 70s with Reggie Jackson and Catfish Hunter and Raleigh Fingers, and then in the late 80s, early 90s, and then again in the Moneyball era, but they're not committed to putting a good product on the field, and they can't wait to get out of town. What do you make of the athletics leaving Oakland? Well, I mean, it's, it was you know it's tough for the fans. It's always tough for any fan base to see their uh, hometown team leave. Uh, you know, that being said, you know the uh, they've been stuck in that coliseum. I mean, they've been trying to get a new ballpark there for twenty twenty five years, and nothing's happened. So finally, I think MLB said, "Hey, enough's enough. You know, we can't play there. That you know, the place is a uh, an absolute dump." Uh, you know. Good people work there, everything else. But, you know, just the uh, the Coliseum is, is awful. So I, I think in this case, it's, uh, you know, we, we gave you every chance in the world. Here's a team that wants you. So go ahead. We'll let you move to Vegas. And uh, and that's what they've done. I mean, it should be, it'll become official here. You know, the, the governor will sign off on it probably, you know, today or tomorrow. And then the uh, NLB will rubber stamp it here in a couple of weeks. But is it good for baseball overall to have a long-standing franchise leave its area and in particular Oakland now won't have a single pro franchise because all of them have left is that good for the game of baseball Bob no I mean it's a, you know, it's a great a, uh, you know great area six million people live in the Bay Area and uh, you know the MLB should have probably let them uh, move there move to uh, San Jose years ago San Francisco Giants blocked it uh, that's where a lot of growth is, a lot of money is, you know, and, and uh, they won't let them go. It was their, it was because the territorial rights. So I, I think here, if you're not getting a new ballpark, uh, you know, no one wants to pay for everything for their own stadium. Obviously, he's a, he's a billionaire, but just you know, uh, it was a good product. I know it's you know now it's you know run to the ground, but you're talking about a, a very successful franchise, and people weren't coming out, and they uh, they just you know when they did come out. Everybody, you know, complain about that stadium. You know, we have raw sewage leaking through and everything else, raccoon, raccoons in the ceilings of broadcast booth. Uh, they had to get a new ballpark. And I think baseball said, we got, we got no choice unless someone steps up to build a stadium. And nobody did. 
Well, Bob, when it, when it comes to the National League, one of the storylines I've been fascinated by has been the Arizona Diamondbacks hanging tough in the NL West. Um, what have you made of them kind of hanging around and, and right now leading the Dodgers and, the, and certainly the Padres have had their struggles as well? Yeah, they've been a, uh, a pleasant surprise. I mean, they, uh, they've been up and coming. They got some uh, you know, great young players, very athletic team. They run wildly on the bases, play great defense. Uh, a little worried about the pitching. They have like two and a half starters. Uh, the bullpen is shaky. So we'll see. I, I think eventually the Dodgers win this division. But there's no reason why the Dynamax can't hang on and grab a wild card spot. And, uh, you know, it's kind of a, a sneaky good division. You know, the Padres are finally, you know, starting to show, uh, show their talent level and, and playing much better. Uh, I think if they win today, they're 500 for the first time since May 11th. The Giants are hanging around at buyback. So the vision, vision could be kind of fun. You mentioned some of those great young players for Arizona, and one of them is Corbin Carroll, who could make a run at Rookie of the Year, and now even some conversations that he could be in the MVP race. Do you think he's uh, in that conversation at the end? Yeah, I mean, right now he'd be a unanimous Rookie of the Year winner. Uh, yeah, certainly you put him in the conversation for top five uh, for MVP and not top three. I think right now it's, you know, the vote was being taken. Ronald Acuna would be a unanimous winner. We'll see uh, Luis Arise, how high he can get that batting average. Uh, and Carol, Carol's uh, right, there with, uh, right there with Freddie Freeman. When it comes to both central divisions, neither one's had a clear-cut favorite or a team that separated themselves. Everybody kind of hanging around 500. Um, who do you like in those two divisions to eventually pull away and, and win the division? Yeah, it's unbelievable how bad those two divisions are. Uh, you know, if you're in the AL East, you know, uh, you'd be running away with, you know, any of those two divisions. Uh, in the NL Central, it's, it is so wide open. Uh, I, I think the Cincinnati Reds are still short. And, you know, it's exciting what they've done. They're hanging around just one game uh, below 500 after losing, you know, over 100 games a year ago or 110 games. So, uh I, I, I would probably say Milwaukee Brewers uh, over over the Pirates. Maybe a week ago, ten days ago, I would say the Cardinals, but the Cardinals just are finding every which way to lose. Uh, AL Central, I'll still take Cleveland, with, just because their pitching is so great. Uh, I don't, I won't discount Minnesota, but I think it's a two-team race. I don't see the uh, the White Sox or anybody else, you know, challenging those two teams. We're talking with Bob Nightingale, USA Today Major League Baseball columnist reporter. He joins us here on RP3 and Company as we talk all things Major League Baseball. Let's focus on the NL East, and let's talk about the Phillies and the Mets. Who's been the bigger disappointment, in your opinion, so far, as they both are either 500 or below 500 at this point of the season? I think it's got to be the Mets. Uh, you know, Phillies finally got to 500 last night, being Arizona. But, you know, when you have a uh, you know, $360 million payroll, you're going to pay about $500 million, uh, including taxes. Uh, if you have the biggest payroll in history, you know, you got to make the playoffs. So, uh, you know, I think it's a big, the big debate was what's the bigger disappointment, the Mets or the Padres. Uh, I mean, it's, you know, catastrophic for, you know, for one of those teams not to make it. Uh, so i I, I got to say the Mets are a much bigger disappointment than the Phillies right now. Who do you think has the better chance of those two teams that you mentioned, the Mets and the Padres, of actually being able to turn things around and make the playoffs? Because they do, right now, they would both be out. 
I got to say the Padres, and they got eleven All Stars uh, on that team. You know that you know, the top four hitters are uh, superstars. Uh, you know they they do have a solid rotation, not a great rotation, but solid. I like their chances better. I, I worry about the Mets. You know, if you're not getting wins out of uh, you know Verlander and Scherzer, you got some big time problems. Uh, Lindor has not been the same guy as he was playing for Cleveland. So uh, yeah, I, I worry about worry about the Mets making it. Yeah, we'll see what happens. I think if the Mets fall short, I, I think they'll definitely hire David Stearns, who was the GM of the Brewers, is kind of uh, on sabbatical this year. Uh, but but I, I would think he would go in as uh, some type of baseball head of baseball operations or something, trying to get that team turned around. The Atlanta Braves saw themselves this offseason lose another one of their core pieces, a guy that helped them win a World Series title in Damsey Swanson. They let him walk. He signs that big deal with the Cubs, and his replacement is far more affordable and yet is far more productive. Is Atlanta the best team in the National League, and how do they keep finding out ways of doing this, what they're doing by replacing stars with guys who are cheaper and seemingly better versions? Yeah, I mean, that sort of wasn't the game plan. I mean, they wanted to keep Swanson. They were only offered, you know, $100 million, you know, given the 177. Uh, so, yeah, they, they tried to give to Vaughn Grissom, and that didn't work out. But, yeah, Orlando Arcia has played uh, very, very good. I mean, he's leading the all-star voting, which he should. But, yeah, just they, uh, they've done a great job just uh, finding talent and developing it, you know, just like they did in the uh, old days. I think clearly they're the best team in the uh, – in the National League. I mean, right now, I, I mean, made a with the uh, both GMs. I actually made uh, hotel reservations for the World Series uh, for a Tampa Bay-Atlanta World Series. I, I think those two teams are that good. And that leads me to my final question, Bob, and, and that's Tampa. They're 49-22 and 22 overall. They just, you know, they just are such a class act of they're always – competitive they're always putting together good teams even though they may not have the stars of other teams but let's look at the rest of the AL East who's in more trouble in your opinion of missing the postseason is it the Yankees who have been riddled with injuries or is it the Toronto Blue Jays I'd probably say Toronto Blue Jays you know I'd kind of put them in the same category as the Phillies uh just you know big disappointments not as big as you know some of the other guys uh, but yeah, I, I think they have more talent than any team in the AL East, and they may miss out. I think that, you know, I think the Red Sox are definitely out. It's very possible all three wildcard teams come from the AL East. Is that strong? Uh, you know, and I, I still think the Yankees would be all right. Uh, I still think they have enough depth. And be, you know, they also show just how viable Aaron Judge is. I mean, there's, there's a, a completely different team when that guy's out of lineup. All right, brother, we'll get you out of here with this. Any possible way that Otani gets traded by the Angels, yes or no? No, no, it's just not going to happen. I mean, they're hanging around, you know, one, they're hanging around a wild card race. And two people forget, this guy makes the franchise a lot of money. I think he makes them, uh, the franchise about $20 million a year in licensing, endorsements, that, kind of, so that sort of thing. So to trade him midseason, you know, you're going to cough, you know, Cut off about half of that. And, you know, they still want to re-sign him. I'm not saying they will. But if you trade him, you got zero chance of uh, of him returning. So, no, uh, he, he's staying put. 
Bob, appreciate your time as always. Brother, keep up the tremendous work you're doing for USA Today and enjoy your upcoming weekend and enjoy the rest of your summer. We'll talk to you soon. All right, sounds great. Thanks, RP. This is RP3 and Company on the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, Southwest Louisiana's sports station. Your home for the LSU Tigers and Houston Astros. Alexa and the game make a great team. Do yourself a favor and enable the Alexa skill, the game Southwest Louisiana, so you can keep it locked in to the game. 1037 Lafayette and 1041 Lake Charles, wherever you go. I want to take a moment to thank our guests. How about Les East from CrescentCitySports.com? He delivered today. So did Bob Nightingale from USA Today talking Major League Baseball. Good stuff today. And you know what? We had a ton of great stuff with comments and some back and forth about our poll question of the day. I love that. I love that. Just to give you a little tidbit of news, though, by the way, to share with you here. Free agent quarterback Carson Wentz has been spending time in Tampa Throwing and studying film with former NFL head coach John Gruden, Wentz wants and intends to play the season and is awaiting the right decision. That's reported by Adam Schefter. Who's ready for more Carson Wentz? No one wants more. No one wants more. No, 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 no. Let's check in on the poll question of the day, which inspired plenty of responses, especially from Salty, a.k.a. It just means more Steve Flint, who came in hot against Wake Forest. Which national seed outside of LSU is your favorite in Omaha? That was our poll question of the day. 46% of you say Wake Forest. 33% say Florida. 14% say VA Virginia Cavaliers. And 7% say Stanford. Plenty of great comments. Plenty of saltiness. By so many of you. Yeah, it's it's early in the week, man. Like he's just just getting after it. It's actually Thursday. Well, it's early in the week for me because I'll be traveling to Omaha, which is gonna feel like that'll take a week. <laughs> just just to be fair. It's still early. It's not even Friday yet, bud. Can we can we have no salt for like multiple days? Is that too much to ask? Am I asking too much, Dawson? Probably yes. Shout out to Dawson Eiserlow multitasker extraordinaire man can talk on the microphone while texting or tweeting i don't know i don't know what not yeah. texting or tweeting just trying to figure out the u.s open viewing schedule which is a little more complicated than i was imagining i've gotten used to the whole espn plus thing but i got nbc coverage so stuff's on peacock it's a whole thing we'll, we'll get it figured out though <laughs> we'll get it figured out that'll do it for today's show we'll be back on tomorrow tomorrow's jam-packed james yasko is going to join us to talk astros Ryan Shumpert's going to come on to talk Tennessee Volunteers baseball. Jacques Doucet from WAFB will be in Omaha to give us insight about LSU. And then Pete Jenkins, that's right, the defensive line legend, will be joining us. Plus, we'll recap the first round of the U.S. Open and so much more. That's all on tap tomorrow. But until then, be safe out there. Be kind to one another. Kevin Foote and Footnotes is up next right here on The Game. Do you need professional cleaning? From complete home or business cleaning to fire and